0: Let's go Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles, or scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take that physical one home. The reason for that couldn't be more simple. We believe that God uses his word in all kinds of massive ways, including, up to and including, I would even say, uh, revealing himself to his people. And so if you don't know God, we want you to know God. And the best way to chase after knowing him is through the Bible. And so if you don't have a Bible of your very own, take that one, start reading it, and that will be a win for everybody in the room. All right, so... We finished off last week, we closed out our, our uh, series that we had been working on for a couple of months called the Already But Not Yet Kingdom, uh, and we, uh, we, we said last week that we t- celebrated Easter together, and, and, and so what we said last week was that, that this resurrected king uh, has defeated Satan's sin and death. He is working towards setting all things right and making all things new, and we're longing for that coming day, and um, the reality is, how how do you step away from that kind of series and that kind of reality that kind of truth to be c- proclaimed and just kind of move on to the next thing right like what do you do the week after jesus is the risen king he's coming back soon you got any good ideas <laughs> it's it's a weird turn but it's a turn that we got to make all Right? uh it's a new season and we get to look at some new stuff this morning and and so what i want to do is i want to kick off a brand new series today starting this morning and going on for the next well several emphasis on several months um it's called this just and justifier uh those two j words are capitalized on purpose it's not just because it's the title of our series it's also because those are titles in and of themselves what I want to do over the next several months is take a long walk through the book of Romans and look at how the Apostle Paul describes God as both the one who is just and the one who justifies. Do you understand what those two words mean? Like we all kind of get just, right? Like we, we normally think of judges, we normally think of laws. To be just is to be right and righteous, right? What about, what about justifier? Well, it's the one who makes right. Makes you right. And so I want to spend the next several months walking through the book of Romans, looking at how God is both the one who is just and the one who justifies. Now, if you're here and you're new, let me take a second to spell out some things about style and trajectory. i there are two major pathways when it comes to planning a sermon series. There are other pathways, but these are the ruts, all right. Two major, two major attempts at, at chasing after. Uh, one is what we would call a topical series, and the other is what we would call an expository series, all right? And so those are the the bookends. And so uh, in in a nutshell, uh, a topical series is really about placing the topic before the text, and the expository series is about placing the text before the title. You you uh, the topic. You get that? Is that maybe, maybe not? All right, so, In a topical series, which is what we did in our last major series, The Story of God, we had this thing we wanted to understand, this question that we wanted to answer, and then we go to the Bible, to the text, in order to find that answer. The reverse of that is an expository series. We've got this text that we're committed to, and then whatever comes up next in the text, that's going to be our topic for the day. See how those are different? And so we try our best here at NBC to kind of flip back and forth between the two when it comes to major series. And so our last one was topical, which means this time it's... See, y'all are so smart. So smart. Yeah, and so the expository folks get a a chance to to play ball. And so here's the most simplified version of what you can expect if you're new uh, new here. We're going to walk line by line, verse by verse, hear me, word by word, through the book of Romans, because we truthfully believe that every single word of it has been given to us for our good. It has been given to us for our benefit, for our profit, for our growth in holiness and righteousness before God, for our understanding of the gospel. Every single word. We want to mine the depths of the book of Romans for the next several months. Sound good to you? Good, because that's what we're doing. When it comes to mining depths, Romans is one of those letters that's go big or go home. Because depths, it's got. Um, I mentioned in passing last week that I believe it's one of the greatest and most important pieces of literature in the history of the world. And I'm actually ready to back up that claim this morning. Do you believe me? That the book of Romans is the, one of the most valuable and most influential pieces of literature Ever, It is widely assumed, widely seen as the Apostle Paul's magnum opus. All right? And for those of you with more scholarly thoughts among you, it is a masterpiece of first century Near Eastern didactic thought. Some of you don't know what those words mean, but that's okay. Because the coolest thing about the book of Romans, all those higher critical theory things are true, but the coolest thing about the book of Romans is that it's nothing more than a missionary support letter. You ever received one of those? Have you ever written one of those? I've written dozens of those. Man, some of them I'm kind of proud of. Like, missionary support letters. Like, you need help taking the gospel to somewhere else, and so you ask your church family and your real family and all these things, and you get them to help you take the gospel to those places. And in chapter 15 of the book of Romans, Paul tells the church in Rome that he's writing to them so that they can help him take the gospel to Spain. That's the point of the book of Romans. Paul wants to preach the gospel in a place that the gospel hasn't preached, been preached before. He knows that there's a frontier beyond Rome into Spain, and he wants Rome's help to get him there. All right? That's the purpose of the letter. The purpose of the letter of the book of Romans is missions. That's what it's all about. Paul has never been to Rome by this point. Rome was, uh, the church in Rome was planted uh, by somebody that we don't know. All right, we don't know anything about its origin story. Marvel hadn't come out with a movie about it yet. All right, but Paul has heard things about this church. And he's been longing to go there for a long time. And over and over again throughout the book of Acts and some of, other, some of Paul's other writings, he tells us that he's wanted to get to Rome, but God has withheld him from going to Rome. For whatever reasons, God said, God has said, no, 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 not now. And so he's wanted to go to Rome, and now he wants to go beyond Rome. And so he's asking the church in Rome for Some help. And so Paul writes this letter and clearly lays out the reason for why they should help him get to Spain. That's the point of the letter. But it's not simply hey, we're on the same team, how about you help a brother out kind of deal. Paul gives a detailed, logical, step-by-step explanation for the global need of the gospel and why God is raising up others to take that gospel to those other places. Like I've written missionary support letters I've asked for help for taking the gospel to places that the gospel hasn't been preached before. I have never written anything close to the book of Romans. Not even a little bit. In fact, masterpiece is actually a laughable understatement when it comes to this letter. And the fallout of this letter honestly stands as one of the most important documents in world history. It has changed the world and it has changed the church far more than anybody in this room is probably aware of. Let me give you three quick examples. In the year 386, so just around the corner from, you know, some of y'all are still in high school. 386, a young and terribly immoral hedonist named Aurelius Augustine was walking around in a park one day and he heard some kids chanting a game. They were saying, take up and read, take up and read. And he just happened to be standing by a Bible. And so the story goes, as he tells it, that he picked up this Bible and he flipped it open randomly and it fell to Romans thirteen eleven, where he read the words, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Augustine at this point in his life was all over the place and was causing all kinds of ruckus. But Augustine, Saint Augustine, points to this moment as his conversion experience. He repented of sin and he went on to become not only one of the greatest and most important theologians in the history of the church, but also one of the most important philosophers in the history of Western thought. You take a secular philosophy class, you're reading some Augustine. Western thought is Western thought because Augustine read Romans. That kind of matters, right? That's only story number one. In 1515... A young Augustinian monk, because Augustine was so influential that they named a monastic order after him, a young Augustinian monk and professor named Martin Luther was teaching Bible at the University of Wittenberg in Germany, or medieval Germany at least. And he was getting ready to preach a class, or teach a class on the book of Romans, so he figured, you know what, I should probably study that first. And so the story as he tells it is that before he got out of chapter one, he became convinced that salvation could never be achieved by anything he did by his own merit, but only by God on our behalf, by grace through faith. And Martin Luther marks that moment as his conversion experience. He marks that truth, grace by faith, as the thing that launched the Protestant Reformation. Salvation by grace through faith is the chasm between the Catholic and Protestant churches. So in other words, Protestantism is a thing Because Martin Luther read Romans. Nothing big. But you want more? I got one more for you. In 1738, some of you had finally gone to college. In 1738, John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, and in a lot of ways, revivalism. Two movements that significantly shaped America early on. Wesley was already an ordained minister in the Anglican Church in London, and one day he was walking through a park. Again, God just does something with Romans and parks. He was walking through a park and he heard a street preacher. The street preacher was doing nothing but reading the introduction to Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. And John Wesley marks that moment as the first time he truly heard the gospel. He repented of his sin and he was converted. The culture of American religiosity, for good or bad, in all its pros and cons, is a thing because John Wesley heard someone else reading Romans. You see what I mean about the impact of this book? It's all over the place. God has used it to literally shape the world in a lot of ways. It doesn't even matter if you like what it says. It doesn't matter if you call yourself a Christian or not. You can't avoid the influence of the book of Romans. Not one bit. And so if God has and continues to use this letter in really, really big ways, first of all, wouldn't it be wise for us to read it too? (laughs) Yeah, I think so. But also then, wouldn't it be wise for us to not only approach this with a certain expectation that He might just do something big again? But also, a third thing, Maybe we should also approach it with the humble heart and a conscious effort that maybe looks past the question of what's in this for me and beyond that to the question of what is God doing here? Because if He really wants to do something big through the book of Romans, maybe He can. And maybe He will. And maybe we ought to get out of the way. Right? So what's the best way to approach it? Well, well, how do we move past all the vaulted things that have been said about it and actually get to a place where we can begin to wrap our head around this really massive, important piece of literature? I know it's going to sound weird. I know it's going to sound weird. But it would be helpful in understanding the book of Romans if we get our head out of ancient Rome and put it instead in modern New York. What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Modern New York. And it's because the book of Romans is best understood as a skyscraper. Okay, see if I can get this to work. You know skyscrapers, right? They're pretty. They got pointy things at the top. Everybody loves the antenna thing. And then, the, you know, like cities are made and broken by the skyline. You, if, you're a, if you're a big, important city, you don't let an ugly building get built in your city, Right? Like in Nashua, we would just rejoice that something was over five stories tall. But like, like New York has to pay attention to the skyline because the skyline sets it apart from everybody else. Skyscrapers are important. They're a modern marvel. And, and I know they kind of date back to, to Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel, but bricks ain't got nothing on what a steel girder and some concrete can do. Right? Over the last 150 years, we just kept inventing new ways to build taller and taller. And so they keep going higher and higher. The first modern skyscraper, I've got it written down here, was the Home Insurance Building in Chicago, which was built in 1884. You ready to be mesmerized? Ten stories tall. Just dwarfed everything around it. But as you know, it, it didn't stay that way for long because buildings kept just getting taller and taller. And so now, as many of you probably know, the tallest building in the world looks like this. The Burj Khalifa in Dubai. So, th- that's tall. I-, I don't know if you know this, but like actually tall. 168 floors. 10 doesn't look so big anymore. Just a shade under 2,000 feet total. It's as impressive as they come. You, you don't build in the UAE without, it making, it- without making it look pretty. All right? it- it's just what they do. So how in the world is the book of Romans like like a skyscraper? Because skyscrapers are a superstructure made up of pieces. You build one section, and then you build another section, and you build another section, and you build another section. And while everybody in this room, including you, is busy looking at the pretty point at the top, the real work is going down. At the bottom. In fact, it's going on below the surface. See, skyscrapers have foundations and they are multi-stories deep. This is a, from a skyscraper called the Salesforce Building in San Francisco. It's in the process of being built. I don't think it's completed yet, but they're way beyond this stage. It, it actually looks like a skyscraper now. But they are not at the bottom of that foundation. They are standing on layers and layers of that foundation. You start building a skyscraper by digging down deep. You need a foundation that's broad and resolute and whenever possible tied directly to the bedrock or your skyscraper isn't going to work very well. And it's here that we can turn to our text for the morning. I'm going to look at just the first sentence of the book of Romans with you today. Don't worry, only one sentence. Starting in verse one of chapter one, we read this: Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of the whole, of Holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus our Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all, na- all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So some of you more grant- grammar sensitive types are probably like about to have an aneurysm right now. But yes, that's the first sentence. So many commas. All right, those of you who are still in grade school, if you turned in a paper like this, how much red is coming back? <laughs> Paul, though, gets to write things like this. And so his one sentence extends beyond the first paragraph and into the next one. Because he's Paul. So, what do we do with that, right? I mean, everybody feel like I got it? Do we just pack it up and go home? Or do we need to walk through it piece by piece. Okay, piece by piece it is. Look at verse 1. Paul. Well, that seems simple enough, right? Did Paul write the book of Romans? Yes. The answer is yes, but you would think it would be that simple, but it's not really that simple because there are a lot of folks who like to pick apart Paul's writings and look for ways to say, oh, Paul didn't actually write this. There's lots of modern scholarship that would say, "Ah, Paul didn't write this and Paul didn't write this and we don't think Paul wrote this. Romans, though, is not one of those letters. There is not a shred of credible debate about the authorship of Romans. Everybody thinks Paul wrote it. We'll learn later that he's dictating this letter through a guy named Tertius, but this is most assuredly Paul's work. It is dripping with Paul's personality. But look at the next part. Paul, what's it say? A servant. A servant. All right, so this part gets picked, up, uh, picked apart by uh, pastors a lot. Um, the word servant there is the word doulos all right, in the Greek. Doulos literally means bondservant. The problem with that is that we don't have a word in English that literally translates well for bondservant. You can say bondservant, but nobody, nobody really knows what that means. What's well, a bondservant? And so pastors like to come to this word and say, well, it means slavery. And that sounds good, right? I mean, it's a big, strong word. And then, and then translators, like, like in the ESV, they like to come to this word and they say, ah, servant. Now, why, why the debate? Well, when you don't have a real clear word that translates well, it allows the interpreter, the reader, to kind of put their own definition into the mix which creates a problem because I shouldn't be trusted putting my own definition in the mix. Right? And so what do we do? Well, it's complicated. And I'm not smart enough to be on a translation committee, so here we are. <laughs> slave is a good word. But slave brings connotations, doesn't it? Servant, like when you picture servant, what do you normally picture? Me, personally, I picture like like butler type in a weird tuxedo, right? Leaning over with a towel on his arm. Like, that's what I picture when I... Like, am I weird like that? <laughs> Wouldn't be the first time. All right, so when I, when I think servant, I think butler type. And so what Paul is talking about here is way, way bigger and way heavier than just a servant. This is no mere butler thing. But if the reader comes in and inserts... 16th through 19th century chattel slavery on top of the biblical definition of slavery, that's also a problem, right? So, what do we do? Well, I'm of the opinion that you start big and, and teach back, but I'm, I don't get to make those decisions. But here's what we do know here's what we do know. No matter what vocabulary words you use, the bond servanthood that Paul is talking about here is a lot bigger than just servitude bond servants were a purchased people a purchased people they had no freedom to do what they wanted they were at the beck and call of their master the will of their master and so when paul calls himself a doulos for christ all right a slave servant bond servant whatever you want to use all right, when he calls himself a doulos for christ he is intentionally saying that he is not his own he was bought with a price He's saying that he has no freedom of his own and that he is at the will of his master, Jesus. What about the next part? Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, what? Called to be a, an apostle, I guess. I should make an "an" Called to be an apostle. So we discussed this many, many moons ago when we walked through the book of Ephesians together, right? All right um, it's been a while, though, so we should probably discuss it again. Paul calls himself an apostle. So what's an apostle? Well, an apostle is in the most generic sense, a messenger. Like a mailman. All right? In the Greek and Roman world, an apostle was literally just the messenger. But messengers are, are kind of seen as this person who only carries the note. But in the first century world, in the Greek and Roman worlds, a messenger actually carried authority. They spoke on behalf of the one who sent them. All right? So they carried authority. And so this is why phrases like, don't shoot the messenger, actually don't apply to the apostles. Because, well, they, they did carry authority and it was kind of a good way of making your point when you sent them back and so what happened what happened was that the early church kind of commandeered adopted if you will this common word to describe the role of people who had been specifically designated by god to carry god's message and there were some rules that they had that they used to to for what it took to make the cut for being an apostle. Uh, For instance, uh, people had to have been an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus. Like, like I don't qualify for that. That's kind of a first century deal, right? They also had to have been specifically instructed by Jesus on what the gospel was. Again, Jesus didn't show up in my office this week and spell it out for me. It's kind of a first century deal. Which means that there are no apostles left today. There might be people who claim that title for themselves. We would lovingly and politely call that a red flag with some deeper issues. Probably walk away. But Paul, though, Paul gets to claim that title for himself because he meets the qualifications. He had seen the resurrected Jesus. He had been instructed by Jesus on what the gospel was. In fact, we're told those stories in the book of Acts. So Paul gets to call himself an apostle. He calls himself an apostle over and over again. So, and so Paul's grander purpose in this letter, he's declaring his apostolic authority here because he is carrying a message from God for God's people. And he's delivering it now. And so this means that this letter is way more important than just Paul wanting a Roman pen pal. He's teaching something here. And so it comes with the authority of God behind it. And so when the apostle speaks, God speaks. Which means for us, it means for us that our posture when reading this letter ought to be one that receives it with humility, right? With a teachable spirit. So what's next? Paul, a servant of Christ, Jesus called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. So earlier when Paul said he was called to be an apostle, that word called it carries a tone in the original language of not having the option to say no. Like like he he wasn't just invited, he's like, No, you're on my team now. All right, that's how his calling took place. Jesus, if you remember the road to Damascus story, Jesus knocks him off his horse. Like that's how the story rolls out. It's like, you're on my team now, Paul. I know you were going over here, but I'm the boss now. And so Paul doesn't have any any kind of Say in this matter, all right? So the the call carries a tone of of not having a choice in the option. And here, here in verse 2, we see the same, or the end of verse 1, we see the same tone. He uh, he says, set apart. All right, that that has the same kind of tone of not really having a choice. So what does that mean? It, It means that when we read this part of the sentence and the rest of the letter, We're not thinking Paul must be special because he's been called and commissioned to preach the gospel to the nations. Paul's tone here is that he counts himself insanely privileged to be one of the ones that God would use to preach the gospel to the nations. See how tone changes things there? It matters in this text. But he also says here that, that this gospel has been promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And so uh, we've talked about that a lot around here lately, right? Our last major series, The Story of God, that was kind of the whole point. That Jesus didn't just show up out of the blue and was like, hey, I got a new plan. Let's try this, guys. But rather, was this was his plan from before the foundation of the world. That the cross was going to happen exactly like it was going to happen. That the resurrection was going to happen exactly like it was going to happen. Right? That his plan from, before, from from before the foundation of the world was to play it out this way. Paul's job here is not to bring some new revelation. This is not a new message. This is an ancient message. It's an eternal message. Paul counts himself as a privileged participant of this gospel story and his job is not to come in with his own ideas and ways to get it done. No, no, no. His job is to deliver the message once for all delivered to the saints. Look at verse 2 again, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, verse 3, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. I know that's a mouthful, but there are several pieces in there that need to be tied together pretty closely or else we miss the point. All right. he starts, Paul starts by coming up out of this eternal promise of a coming Messiah, right? And he immediately connects that promise to the Son, as in the eternal Son, the second member of the Trinity, fully God, right? Absolute in power, absolute in majesty, absolute in glory, absolute in beauty, absolute in honor, that one. He promises, He connects this promise of a Messiah to the eternal second member of the Trinity, the Son. And we're also told that this Son is also, at the very same time, descended from David in the flesh, So how do those two things meet up in the same person? Jesus. The eternal second member of the Godhead put on flesh and dwelt among us, but he didn't just come out of nowhere. This dude's got a family tree. He got his Ancestry.com report, and he is a direct descendant of King David. But There's a theological reality to this too. We talked a few weeks ago about the triumphal entry, right? And we said then, that as they were shouting, Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be the Son of David. That Son of David part, that carries weight in a Jewish context. carries a ton of weight because to the Jewish mind, calling someone a Son of David was calling them the Messiah. Because back when King David was actually sitting on his throne, God comes to him and says that a descendant of his will one day sit on his throne forever. Jesus, the eternal son of God, who put on flesh and dwelt among us, came to be that Messiah. That was his purpose. And how do we know this? Like, how do we know this more than just some grand promise? Well, Paul tells us. He was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, he says. I know that's a weird mouthful of a sentence, but let me me put it in different words. Jesus proved His power and proved His Messiahship and proved His Spirit-filledness by His resurrection. That's what Paul's saying. If death itself can't defeat Him, what then can? And so Jesus proves Himself to be more than mere man. Jesus proves Himself to be more than mere prophet. Jesus proves Himself to be more than just good teacher. He is Messiah. It's proven by his resurrection. And so Jesus, the Christ, and Christ is just a a Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah that we've already been using, right? Jesus, the Christ, proves himself to also be Lord. That's what Paul says. Because of the resurrection, not only is he the Messiah, not only is he spirit-filled, not only does he walk in power, but he's also Lord. That's what Paul's saying there. So Jesus... Jesus comes in and He does what no one else, neither you nor me nor Tom Brady, could ever do. Tom Brady could do a lot. I've got to give him credit for that. But Jesus comes in and does what neither you nor me nor anyone else you idolize could ever do. He defeated death itself. Time to check in. You keeping pace so far? Told you. The book of Romans is sometimes heavy. But are you starting to figure out what the bedrock foundation of of Paul's gospel skyscraper is? But let's keep reading. Verse 5. Through whom? Through Jesus. We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. Okay, so not only is Paul a servant, slave, bond servant, whatever word you want to use of Jesus, not only is he privileged to be one of the lucky few who get to preach the gospel to the nations, but here we see him say explicitly that the grace and the apostleship that he's received from Jesus is come for the express purpose of proclaiming Jesus' name among the nations. Like the entire reason the apostles existed was for the purpose of kingdom proclamation to all peoples. That's why the apostles were there. And if gospel proclamation to all the peoples isn't a need, then the apostles aren't a need either. And so Paul says, hey, the reason why God called us out and made us this special group of people was for this purpose. And that includes the audience of this letter, the church at Rome. Some of you may be asking, the church at Rome is included in the nations, quote-unquote? If you know your Bible well, then you know that the book of Acts spells out a pretty clear trajectory of church plant after church plant after church plant. And while there are Gentiles slowly being added to the mix, the predominant culture of the first century church was Jewish. Because they already kind of had the theological legs to wrap their heads around a Messiah, right? 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 And so Jews are being saved first. And then then later on, about halfway through the book of Acts, we see Gentiles start to come in. But most of these churches are just mostly Jewish. And so even as Gentiles are being folded in, guess who the, uh, the long-standing members of these churches are? They're Jews. Which means the leaders of these long-standing churches are Jews. Which means all these churches are predominantly Jewish in their culture, right? Like you really want to change the culture of a church? Start putting people from other cultures on the stage. That's how you change the culture of the church, right? right? And so, this, these churches, including the church at Rome, are predominantly Jewish in their makeup and in their membership numbers and in their culture. But the church at Rome is an interesting little beast. Because in 49 AD, the emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews from the city of Rome. They got in a fight about some theological issues. He said, like, get out of here. And so all the Jews had to leave. Which means this church that had a predominantly Jewish background all of a sudden lost all of its Jewish members and was left with who? Yeah, it immediately became a smaller Gentile culture church. And then it took about five years for Claudius to die. He finally kicked the bucket and his rule was undone and Jews began to trickle back into the city. Hey, everybody, you think there was a culture clash when they got there? <laughs> Just a little one? Yeah there's a little bit of... There were some sparks that flew. We could say it that way. And so one of the themes that we're going to see all throughout this letter is that Paul is going to keep an eye to the tense relationship between Jewish and Gentile Christians. He's going to speak directly at some points to it and kind of around it at some points to this need. He's going to navigate those waters, though, in a way that takes their eyes off of themselves and instead keeps them on Jesus as the one uniting them together into one body. Or we could say it this way, into one gospel skyscraper. Look at verse 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be who? Saints. Okay, So we covered this before too, but... Um, When you live in a region of the country that's heavily influenced by Catholicism, you've got to spell it out from time to time. So whenever Paul, or anyone else in the Bible for that matter, calls someone a saint, they are not talking about a venerated class of people by the Catholic Church. All right, You have to spell that out here, so we're spelling it out. Uh, They're talking about every believer in the church. The Greek word is hagios. It's talking about someone who's been declared holy. That's the point of the word. And regardless of what Catholicism teaches, in the Bible at least... Someone is declared holy because they trusted in the finished work of Jesus on their behalf. Not because they brought something to the table, not because they did some miracle, not because they had extra grace to share with others, and certainly not because they figured out the whole righteousness game. In the Bible, you're declared holy and set apart because Jesus gives you his holiness and sets you apart. That's the gospel. And Jesus promises no less for you, too. Like if, if, For you and I, if we were to place our faith in him today, he would call you holy. He would call you a saint. Jesus is pleased to declare you holy. Not because you managed to clean yourself up for him, but because through the cross, he takes your sin from you and gives you his righteousness instead. You might have walked in the door this morning as a sinner, but you can just as easily walk out of here as a saint. Verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so if, if Paul's greetings are always supposed to clue us in on the, what the letter is going to be about, we said that earlier, right? What do we see here? What do we see in the first seven verses, the first sentence of the book of Romans? What's the bedrock foundation that, got, that Paul's gospel skyscraper is building on? Jesus, right? Jesus is the one who is master and has authority over all things. Jesus is the one who fulfills every single Old Testament promise. Jesus is the one who is placing his servant slaves where he wants them for his purposes. Jesus is the one who put on flesh and dwelt among us as the Messiah. Jesus is the one who conquered the grave and rose victoriously over the dead, uh, proving his lordship. Jesus is the one who is uniting the nations to himself for the glory of his name. And Jesus is the one who declares you holy for being found in him. Can you think of a better foundation to build the gospel on top of than Jesus? You'd be wrong. Before Paul can begin building his massive gospel argument skyward, he first digs down deep and anchors it to the bedrock. The one, the one, who is more resolute than anything this world could ever offer up. The beauty and the goodness and the eternity-shaping joys of the gospel are grounded first and foremost in the beauty and the goodness and the eternity-ruling reign of King Jesus. You miss that part, you get the foundation wrong, and the rest of the gospel building will fall apart. It'll never stand. So before we can faithfully understand Romans, we all each need to be anchored to the Jesus that supports it that it's built off of. So that raises the question for us this morning. How do we respond to God's Word? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your response is to press into God today. And I think you do that by repenting of sin and leaning into the reality that the author and operator and star of this grand story of redemption is the very same Jesus that loves you and calls you His own. Same Jesus. The Apostle Paul, speaking with the authority of God to God's people, comes with the greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, hear me, church. That's a phrase, that's a, that's a, a truth and a reality that you can rest in today. You can rest in that. Before you get into this and before you get into to that, rest in the reality that Jesus is holding everything together. If he's not, we're in trouble. But listen, I, I, think, I think the Christian should also respond with gospel proclamation, right? So More than your friends need to, and your neighbors need to know that Jesus can do this and that Jesus can do that, they first and foremost need to know Jesus. Simply need to know Him. So who is God putting in your pathway this week that needs to hear that King Jesus stands resolute? that He is mighty to save, and that He will never, ever fail to fulfill anything He has promised. I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing. We'll have some leaders down front here to talk and pray with you if that would serve you this morning. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm glad you chose to hang out with us today. I am. Uh, You can respond to God's Word too, and you do that by meeting Jesus. You do that by placing your hope and your trust and your faith in Him as Savior and Lord. And so the cross was an eternal part of His eternal plan to pay the penalty for your sin. He went to it with joy, the Bible tells us, because it meant good for you and glory for Him. He was pleased to endure the suffering of the cross. And so He now stands to reconcile you to Himself this morning. And so the Bible calls you to trust Him and to call on Him as Lord. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. If you want somebody to walk you through that next step, I'll be down here. But let's all respond to God's word this morning. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the book of Romans. It is big, and it is weighty, and it is beyond us, and left to our own devices. We're in trouble, because I'm not going to understand it. That You bring clarity. You use it for Your purposes. And You breathe in our heart and in our life what You want us to know as we search for You in it. So we ask that You would use the book of Romans in a big way here. Today and in the months to come. That You would affect the kind of change here that kind of scary to ask, but may just change the world. When I think about the ways you've used it in the past, I don't know if I'm ready for that. But I trust you. And I trust your goodness. And I trust your care for us. And I trust your wisdom. So God, would you draw us in deep? Would you change us forever personally and as a church body? God, would you help us see that this is more than just a a weighty, important piece of literature, but it's a declaration of your glory. You are the foundation, God. Everything stands or falls on our understanding of you. So teach us well. Humble us before you. Call us yours. God, for those in here who don't know you today, would you Open their eyes to know you. It's our belief that when we see you for who you are, we are forever changed. Would you open eyes today? Would you call people to yourself? Would you save? Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your resurrection. Thank you for bringing us together today. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.